Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Hamilton City staff have unearthed another case of recommended road safety work reports that were ignored. Why are other political parties starting to pay attention to Elizabeth May and the Green Party? And also, enough. That's the message on Time Magazine on the cover story this week. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. City staff have uh, once again unearthed another uh, recommended road safety report that uh, for some reason got buried or ignored or shoved in somebody's bottom drawer or whatever, which is why you've seen, if uh, you're up late at night, uh, these overnight closures on the link. Because these are what they quote as uh, an urgent uh, repair system that needs to be done. Uh, If it was urgent, how come it waited so long? I want to bring John Best into the conversation, publisher of the uh, Bay Observer. Uh, John, good morning. Thanks for joining us on the show today. My pleasure, Bill. John, is there a, a, a should we be troubled about this? It seems to be a, a rather troubling pattern here of, uh, of uh, well, gee, I didn't know that was there. Or, hey, did you guys ever read this? I mean, I, I guess the obvious question a lot of people might have is, what are they going to uncover next? Yeah, I, I think there is cause for concern uh, beyond, frankly, uh, whatever the content of these reports are. I think it points to a, uh, a bigger issue, and uh, I think the issue is uh, just general oversight on the part of council. Uh, I, you know, the more I look at this, uh, you know, sort of coupled with the, with the paving report, uh, I, I think our council uh, has, uh, certainly on these issues, and, and I would say many others, are, have been totally negligent. Uh, this, this kind of problem doesn't spring up in the, if you've got a vigilant, engaged, intelligent council. And, uh, what we're, and, and I'll give you an example uh, related to the Red Hill. Um, there has been a controversy going on for five or six years about whether friction issues, uh, uh, you know, all these fatalities that we've been hearing about. The, the friction issue didn't raise its head when we found out about the report. There have been all kinds of discussions. People weren't necessarily talking about friction, but they knew there was something wrong. Uh, so they were talking about uh, medium barriers and cat's eyes and maybe better lighting and uh, a whole a whole myriad of issues. So if you go back to uh, the fall of 2017 when they were considering the the budget, the capital budget for 2018, with all of that stuff swirling around, uh, there were two or three uh, uh, reports uh, being commissioned. There were studies being done about safety on the Red Hill Expressway, and at a capital, at a two or three capital budget sessions, uh, councillors voted for the complete repaving of the Red Hill portion of the expressway, yeah. and not one person raised a peep about, oh, wait a minute, we've got all these studies going on. Uh, wh- what's this all about? So something in the area of $13 million worth of paving was passed without any discussion whatsoever by council. And to me, if you were sitting on council at a time when the safety of the highway was an issue, and, and, and you suddenly get a, uh, a capital budget recommendation that we spend $13 million repaving the, the highway, it seems to me that that should have raised some red flags, but it did not. And, you know, that's on council. That's, uh, that's not on staff. Uh, it may have been presented in a way to attract as little attention as possible, but that's no excuse. I, I, I really think we have a, a council problem here as much as whatever these studies and who's withholding them, and that's certainly a problem. But 
at, at the end of it all, to me, it comes back to council. Well, ultimately, the, the buck stops with the elected officials, doesn't it? I mean, you know, they're they're the ones that, uh, to get into this idea, that old analogy of rowing versus steering, they're the ones that are supposed to, to set policy, they're, and staff are supposed to enact that policy and do it in an efficient and cost-effective way. But but council can't just say, there, we're finished, that's our job now. Uh, you guys go ahead and do your job. There still has to be oversight. And I, It seems to me, I, I agree with you, I think there's somebody's dropping the ball here. Well, uh, I, I think council, yes, um, steering instead of rowing, absolutely. But you read the damn reports. Uh, there have been reports uh, put in front of council. Pay attention to the budget. I mean, if, if you're a counselor and you just put your hand up and say carried, for $13 million worth of paving and no staff presentation explaining why it's being bumped up, uh, nothing. Uh, it just appeared as a line item on the budget, and they voted for it because they weren't paying attention. It's either that or some of them knew, and, and so hopefully that will come out in this, uh, this investigation. Another example, I spoke to a counselor who told me uh, recently that he had not read the friction report. Uh, it's a 13-page report, uh, had not read it, even though the same counselor and all other counselors had voted to spend anywhere from 2 to $9 million on uh, the judicial inquiry. But how could you vote to spend that kind of money without at least have, at least have read the executive summary of a 13-page report? It would be a one-page read. But that's it's an just, ongoing, you know, John, that's an ongoing problem. That's been happening for years uh, with various members of council, some of whom are still there, of course. Uh, and we know that. I mean, you know, the, the, the joke was you'd go to committee meetings and you'd see some of these people. And I mean, this is back in the days, of course, when everything was on paper. Uh, and they hadn't even unsealed the, the staff reports and, and the committee reports before they started to vote on this stuff. But And, and that's always going to be a problem. But now we're getting into big bucks and possibly some health and safety issues here. Well, if they're not reading the reports, they shouldn't be on council. Uh, there, there should be a minimum level of competence uh, now that we're paying them ninety odd thousand a year, and they're they're uh, and because they're lifers, they're they're going to get decent Omer's pensions. Many of them, uh, we we have a right to demand more, and the public uh, certainly has a right to demand more than uh, just making sure the sidewalks are okay in your ward and everything's tickety boo. Huge issues going on here that are going to cost us uh, tens of millions of dollars. And we've got counselors who aren't reading the reports, aren't asking questions. And when you get a counselor like Skelly, who, who did ask questions about, you know, uh, various issues, she was ostracized because she was rocking the boat. I, I'm not sure what the boat is to be rocked here, but there's got to be a reason why uh, these counselors are not asking questions. Well, especially in light of what's happened over the last couple of months, and, and, you know, we can relate both the Link and the Red Hill because they seem to be the two big concerns here, especially from safety issues. Uh, and in light of the controversy that was caused, and as you say, that's still an ongoing uh, thing. It's an investigation. They've hired somebody, and who knows how much that's going to cost. You would have thought the councils would have been that much more diligent then about these reports and about what's going on and not going on. And and at least directing staff to say, look, at, start going through your, your desk drawers, because if there's more reports, we want to find out about them right now. I don't know that they've had that conversation. Well, if they have, it's behind closed doors. I, I just think, uh, you know, we, we are at a point where we really need to demand a little better uh, from, from our counselors. They're our representatives. I, I don't know what staff is doing. Uh, I don't know what they've done in the past. It is troubling to see a report 
that, that appears to have not been acted on or not even perhaps released. But, you know, it's possible this report was released in, in something these counselors had seen, but they wouldn't know because, uh, you know, they haven't taken the elastics off their, uh, uh, their agenda packages. Uh, to, I guess that's no longer the way it works, but you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. They're, not, they're not paying attention to the things that are really important they're paying attention to the things that get them reelected, but they're they're doing a disservice to the public. And and it's not every counselor, but quite frankly, uh, if you've only you know I'm I'm looking at the previous council here uh, uh, that was uh, before last fall, the only person on council that was asking unpleasant, uh, uncomfortable questions is is no longer there. But here you had people that've been there twenty, thirty years. Uh, not asking questions, and they may say, "Well, look, we we, we do that quietly. We do, we don't want to embarrass staff, and and so on." But they have to be seen to be doing their job, and uh, there has to, and and obviously they weren't doing their job because we have these reports uh, popping up uh, that probably should have received serious discussion and action, and they haven't they haven't been acted on. So uh, we have a problem, but it starts with council, not staff. Well, especially when you look at this latest thing that uh, that Andrew Dressel writes about in the Spectator today about this uh, now uncovered report about uh, potential problems with uh, the the signage and, and things falling down, uh, that sounds to me very much, John, like that was an accident waiting to happen, and, and somebody uncovered this. I'd like to know how that happened. Where did they find this report? Who went looking for it? And 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 why was it sitting there? If there was, because there seems to be a sense of urgency here. Yet <laughs> clearly, it's been a while since anybody put, laid eyes on this report on either staff or, as you say, I don't even know if council has ever seen this thing. Uh, probably not. Uh, or, but as I say, it could be hiding in plain sight. Uh, on agendas that they don't read anyway. Um, it was interesting, though, in the story, it, it mentioned that, that when staff realized this report existed, they, they shared the information with the mayor and the head of the Public Works Committee. Um, it makes you wonder, going back to the friction report, uh, did something similar happen then? We don't know, but uh, you know, you really have to wonder if, if some people knew and some people didn't. Is it a case that nobody knew? Well, and to your point, uh, you know, in, in with the the Red Hill situation, uh, and who knows what's going to happen from a legal standpoint on that. And, and as I say, now we've got something going on in the link, uh, and it's a minor inconvenience. I understand closures in the middle of the night so they can fix this stuff is not really going to ruin anybody's career or anybody's day or anything like that. But it's the lack of of of, of information that's going back and forth. And, and you're right; it's a two headed monster here. The, there seems to be a lack of communication between staff and council, and there seems to also be a, a much more dangerous lack of communication between what goes on at City Hall and what we, the public, are hearing about. No question, and I think the the other trend I've seen on council, which which again just feeds this issue, is the way they defer to each other on various issues, and it sort of absolves them of having to do their own homework. So we have one counselor uh, who's who's the declared expert on anything to do with construction. Everybody else can go back to sleep. We got another one who's the guru on finance, so everybody else cannot pay attention. That, that's when really bad stuff starts creeping into the system. Uh, everybody's got to do their homework. Uh, everybody's got to ask tough questions. It doesn't mean creating a hostile dynamic, but what it means is, is that we start behaving in a professional manner. It, it's not professional when this kind of stuff is getting past 
council and and maybe even senior staff. Well, and, and that uh, whole acts of deferral, I, I think we see ha- happen on a pretty constant basis. Uh, and you're right, there are some people that do do their homework and they do their diligence, but you're you're right, that that, la- that expertise that they seem to have is actually an excuse for other councils to say, well, so-and-so is going to ask those questions anyway. So, but, yeah, but everybody on that council has a responsibility. I mean, they're all voting on it, John. Uh, it, it's not, you know, you don't say, well, I'm not going to bother voting on it because I didn't read the report. You're going to vote, uh, you know, and we're spending money. They're spending money anyway. And you'd like to think that uh, uh, this this is sounds so elementary that we just took for granted that, that it, it does happen most of the time. Now I'm starting to wonder whether it does, whether or not they are actually making informed decisions when they vote on issues like this. Well, they certainly weren't making an informed decision when they voted to spend $13 million to repave the highway. Um, They either weren't paying attention or maybe there was some tacit information shared that we're not aware of. But how does something like that get passed without, I can't find a staff report recommending it, so it would appear the first time anybody got a look at it, it was simply inserted as a line item on on a capital budget that seems highly unusual to me uh... and and then they vote on it i i watched the tapes of the of the meeting where it was passed and uh, there was no discussion of the item at all it wasn't even isolated as a as a discussion item just that whole uh, package of public works um, uh, recommendations were passed by uh... uh simply uh, you know carried and uh, that was it you know, it, it, I just can't imagine. I, I know part of the problem, I think, is the way the budgets are presented. Um, you'll recall, uh, I don't know if it was happening during your time, but certainly close to your time there, uh, you'd, at budget time, you'd see the councillors all sitting there uh, with these great big six-inch thick fan-folded uh, line-by-line budgets. Yep. Uh, now what they seem to get is a collection of PowerPoint presentations by department heads, uh, very little in the way of line-by-line detail. I guess it's available somewhere, but it just strikes me that, um, you know, that this has been dumbed down in order to, you know, get council moving. You notice that our budget procedures are moving much more quickly now. Remember, we used to be halfway through the budget year before that year's budget got passed. Oh, yeah, it was it was we sometimes into that. April. Yeah, sometimes into April. Yeah. We had we, one huge book for uh, yeah. for the capital budget and one for the operating budget, and it would take an yeah, inordinate no, amount no. of time to get through that stuff. It's been beautifully streamlined, but I wonder if it's been streamlined to the point where where they really don't know what the hell they're voting on. They're they're just uh, uh, as long as they see the item that they want on their ward. Uh, oh, we're going to get those sidewalks done. Terrific. Uh, I, I just don't see anybody taking a holistic view of, uh, of the budget, and uh, that's just another reason why you get things. Uh, you know, it's not the, the fact that they spent $13 million on the paving. It's the fact that an item like that of that magnitude could even be on a budget, uh, and nobody asking why. Where, where did this come from? We, we haven't discussed accelerating paving the highway by three or four years and yet here it is and uh, and let's just uh, put our hands up and vote for it it's very troubling uh which begs the question which i'm sure a lot of people in this community are asking right now is what's next uh when, when's the next report the next uh, you know phantom report or hidden report 
uh, going to come out, and what's it going to be uh, indicator? It's it's kind of a troubling situation, and I'd, I'd like to think that the counselors themselves are troubled by this. John, thanks as always for the insight into this, and uh, for at least well, you're one of the people anyway that does an awful lot of the digging and research on this to try to get the story behind the story here, and uh, we just keep reading the Bay Observer, and hopefully that'll inform maybe even a few counselors. Have a great weekend. You never know. Thanks very much, Bill. Okay. John Best, of course, from the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So with the uh, federal election uh, just a few weeks away now into the middle of October, why are the uh, other major parties uh, starting to pay attention to Elizabeth May and the Green Party? Let's ask Henry Jasek about this. Carson Henry is a professor of political science at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Morning, Henry. How are you doing today? Just great, Bill. Good. As we get ever closer to this, uh, the high drama that's, that's happening here, we know that it's pretty much a neck-and-neck race, we're told anyway, between the Liberals and the Conservative Party on the federal level. But let me ask you about the other two parties. About the, first of all, the NDP, who seem to be sinking faster than a stone, uh, and the, the Green Party, who's all of a sudden getting a lot of interest. What's going on there? Well, I think uh, what's happening is uh, something that's actually been in the works for a long period of time, and we're just seeing a lot of it become visible, and that is uh, people who, uh, over younger people who are uh, more, much more concerned about environmental issues, are getting older and forming a larger part of the uh, electorate. Uh, the older generation, which basically did not, uh, you know, uh, uh, did not you know worry about this problem as much as the younger generation are basically being replaced uh, they're leaving the electorate as political scientists like to say and uh, they're so they're being replaced and then uh, so that that's one thing this is something that's basically a long-term um, uh, phenomena that's starting to come to fruition and then secondly I think over the last 10 years it's pretty clear that we are seeing and we're seeing it in Ontario, in Canada, we are seeing um, uh, environmental events which are very traumatic and which people are now trying to find out what, what's going wrong, or wrong, and essentially they're paying attention to the scientific reports that are saying, you know, with global uh, ch- climate change, the, cl- the uh, storms that we're going to have and the uh, problems with the uh, weather we're going to have are going to become far more intense, whether it's uh, the type of forest fires we've seen in the West, uh, Fort McMurray, but all across the West, uh, or the torrential downpours, we've downtown Toronto, but other places, you know, we're having flooding occurring in, in residential areas where it didn't occur before, and, uh, it's, and it's, it, it's all... You know, these these are people are starting to notice this, and then of course they're being uh, they're they're looking well for answers for this. And the and and, and climate scientists who've been talking about this for thirty to forty years, they're uh, finally uh, many of their reports are being paid attention to. But for many many years, uh, the NDP were the party that would say, "Look, at when you guys finally get around to starting to care about the environment, we're the party for you." And right. but they they seem to be ignoring the NDP and going right down to the Greens uh, because the last poll I saw, and of course you can find a poll to suit anything, I guess, these days. But mm-hmm. but the CBC poll that I was reading the other day, actually, as we mentioned, has the Liberals and Conservatives almost in a dead heat. Right. Uh, they've got uh, the NDP at about 14 percent, and the mm-hmm. Greens are only three points behind them. That's right. The so, so the first place the Greens are, they are picking up new Democratic support. Uh, the NDP has had a problem uh, his, 
historically of keeping two parts of their party together. The first part, of course, is their working class, uh, union-based uh, manual workers and uh, skilled workers, people in manufacturing and what have you. And, and the second part of their base have, have been middle class people who've been interested about, you know, um, uh, so what we sometimes call post-industrial issues of which the environment is one. And, uh, the envi- and, and oftentimes the, the NDP has really waffled about how, what are they going to do? They worry if they pay it too much attention to these post-industrial issues like the environment, uh, their, their working class base will disappear or not, not, uh, will go to over another party or will, be, uh, uh, will basically stay home. Uh, in particular, we've seen that's, that's part of the reason why, for example, you'll see people like, well, the Fords, for example, whether the mayor, the former mayor, late mayor of Toronto or his brother who's now premier, they did take uh, working class people and saying, listen, the NDP doesn't care about what really affects you, which is jobs and, and your income and taxes and stuff like that. And um, that, so that part of the base hasn't worried about, you know, NDP base didn't normally worry about environmental issues. But at the same time, when, when, the, when the party then tries to keep those people from leaving and going over to people like the Fords, then they, uh, they alienate the uh, middle class people who are, who are saying, listen, we've got an environmental problem. It's, coming, you know, it's getting bad now. It's going to be a lot worse if we don't do anything over the next 10, 20 years. And it's leaving. And to give me an, a local example, because I've, I've been monitoring some email and actually people have been sending me, a number in, in the Hamilton West for exa- area, for example, a number of p- long-standing New Democrats, including at least a prominent former uh, NDP candidate repeatedly in this end of the city, have gone over uh, over the last year or so to the Greens in Hamilton West. Is that right? Oh, yeah. And I don't, uh, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that the... the um, these people are going to, you know, the Greens are going to win in Hamilton West. I wouldn't put any money on that right now. But it certainly does weaken the uh, NDP, which has become stronger and stronger in the, uh, in, in the West End. They hold it provincially, of course. Uh, but the, this now being weakened, and uh, I, uh, the, um, I, these, people just, you know, these people just basically believe that the NDP is just not paying enough of attention to environmental issues and uh, they're they're attract you know they're saying listen we have to do that and a number of them have, have gone over, and uh, so um, the uh, I, I mean I you know see so that's the type of thing I don't think it's a huge number but I mean it's visible they're out you know they have been contacting NDP members and asking them to go over to the Greens I don't know they have got some people to do that how many they're going to get you know to do that I don't know but it's certainly a visible sign of you know of of the problems of the NDP of you know they they face these two enemies as i said they face the greens taking away their their middle class well educated somewhat younger voters and they and they face uh, the uh, if they don't you know take account and and worry about their working class members they'll t- they will lose them to the conservatives i think in general so they it, it's a real problem and 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 so far the party hasn't figured it out so because of that tumultuous situation as you say maybe the disenchantment yeah. a lot of people felt we've seen at least on a provincial level henry right. uh the greens make some some gains especially in the east yeah. coast of course in provincial elections out there uh they won a seat federally but also they did quite well in the last provincial election in british columbia mike schreiner of course from guelph Right is the first Green Party member uh, in the legislature here in Ontario. But can you take that and those past successes, and I think it's fair to call them successes, right. does that translate into, into success on the national level too? 
Uh, well, that'll be a good question. I, we'll have to see how well the Greens do. I, I personally don't think the Greens are going to win any seats in Ontario. Right now, that's the way I look at it. But I think their vote's going to be up. Uh, the problem, of course, with the Greens will face as they when they get once they get into the election campaign, a lot of these people who are with the Greens right now might say, "Well, uh, we will the election will probably come down to two to two alternatives. Uh, one of those inter- alternatives is almost invariably the Conservative Party. Uh, then, then who do they pick on the other side? And a lot of constituencies, they sort of, uh, by, by the end of election, inside the constituency, you're down to the conservatives plus somebody from the, uh, what I could call the progressive left. Either it might be the mildly progressive left of the liberals, a little bit more of the NDP or the Greens, and they'll just see what happens. And, and m- most of those cases, those people who pay close attention to politics will either go over to the liberals or go over to the NDP. So, you know, they'll lose some of that, uh, that what they have now. I don't think they're going to have double-digit popular support in the country or, or Ontario. But it, is, but it is slowly building. I mean, to take Guelph, for example, which is an interesting seat, and Schreiner, the provincial green leader, is there, and he is a very impressive person. Uh, I'm very, I'm, I mean, uh, many people are impressed with him. Yeah, with, I've, with I've had him on the show many times. He's pretty yeah, insightful. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, young people, older people, everybody. I'm impressed. I've met him, talked to him. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, May as well, the federal leader out in British Columbia, she's, she, whenever anybody you know, pays attention to her, she's impressive as well. As a matter of fact, she was going to retire. She was so discouraged after the last election, she actually announced her retirement. <laughs> well, it turns out she hasn't retired because after she announced her retirement, things started to look better for the Greens, so she's hanging in there. And she's certainly an asset. But if you look at that Guelph seat, come back to that. In, in the federal election four years ago, the former environmental commissioner of Ontario, Gord Miller, uh, ran, and he, he did the best of any Greens in, uh, in Ontario in, in the general election, but he didn't win. But he, he put on a great campaign, and, uh, but he, you know, they, you build up in a constituency over time the legitimacy of a, either a candidate or a party, and that's, that's what's happening here. And, and, it, and it works, you know, for the Greens and the NDP in particular, and maybe to a certain extent um, the liberals and conservatives, you know, they, they, work, they get a certain kind of legitimacy over time as you see them get stronger and stronger. And so it's, uh, you know, we're, they're in a building process, the Greens, but they're, you know, they're far away from winning, I think, a lot, uh, any seats. But I think they're, they're getting stronger and stronger, and it's just a real question of what, how the liberals and the NDP are going to respond to that because those are, the, those are the parties that are, you know, most likely to lose members to the Greens. But it seems as if, if the headline here is that the, the Green Party seems to be on the rise, and, and again, right. we don't know how much of an impact that's right. going to have. Uh, the subheading here seems to be, well, the NDP just seemed to be spinning their wheels then. Uh, and, and we've talked about this in the past, Henry, right. that there have been attempts, as you mentioned, uh, I, I think there's some people that are saying, well, just what is the NDP here in the 21st century? Are they still the party of labor? Are they an environmental mm-hmm. party? That, uh, right. And every time they've had somebody, well, like a Jack Layton, or, and even more recently Tom Mulcair, who's tried to move them a little bit more to the middle and be a little more progressive and... and uh, they get rebuffed. Uh, well, Leighton sadly died, but I mean, yeah. there just seems to be this resistance within the party to, to, to move that in that direction. Tony Blair tried to do it with the Labour Party in, in right. Great Britain, and he was successful at it, at least in the short term. Anyway, he got a couple yeah, of election right. wins out of that. But they don't seem to want to do that right now. They, you know, parties are supposed to evolve. They're living, breathing things. And, right. and I, I maybe, I, I guess these guys need to do some soul searching. 
Yeah, and it's also a question of their leaders. I mean, to, uh, Blair and uh, and 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 uh, Jack Layton. I mean, these these were unusual people. These the, they were you know they had a, a sixth sense about understanding where the public was, and the, you know it. It, you know, I, I sometimes give lectures about why the two of them are so successful, because uh, leadership is an area that I, I spend a lot of time reading about. And, and yeah, they were very special people, but most of the leaders don't have the type of, you know, leadership qualities that a Blair and Leighton had. And, 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 and we look at the NDP right now, Jagmeet Singh, I'm, it's a person who I know and, and I respect a great deal, and I've had personal relations with him in, in, at the legislature. Uh, he he's a great guy, but I I just think it was a big mistake that he went federally. First of all, he didn't have a seat. He had never sat in the House of Commons. He he actually was pretty rusty on federal issues, um, and you know he's had really trouble getting going. And I think I think he really I really think he jumped too soon. I think he would have been much better off to stay you know for a few more years with the uh, provincial NDP. But he jumped too early and. He happened to win the uh, the uh, leadership of the NDP, and he's he's really is struggling. I think over the long term, if he survives, he's going to be a, a very good leader. But he's just he just didn't have the uh, experience really to take take on that par uh, pow, uh, that party position and go up uh, go up against somebody like Justin Trudeau, who you know had had really more of that more experience and was has an ability to appeal to people who in the who under, you know, when Leighton was in there, it would have been NDP, but Justin Trudeau was able to appeal to those people, and Jagmeet had, was not able to counter it. I mean, he, I know he's put out a vigorous environmental uh, package right now. Uh, it, it's not wi- widely known. I mean, if he does, I mean, if I were an advisor to him, if I happened to talk to him, I'd say, <laughs> listen, you've got to spend your money and tell people about your environmental package. That's the number one thing I've got to do, because I, I think he has an attractive platform on that area, but virtually nobody knows about it. And so he's got aver- to make speeches about it. He's got to get advertisements out there. He's got to come on talk shows with people like you and say, this is our environmental po- package. Let me explain. And then ask people what they think about it. Well, uh, yeah, and I guess that comes back to money again, doesn't it? And we've heard problems uh, with the NDP over the last year or so about raising funds. And, and, of course, if you can't raise funds, you don't buy advertising. The liberals and conservatives are, are, are on a much different track. They seem to be able to do that. And, and obviously, that you know, money talks when it comes to doing that sort of thing. So there's going to be a problem there. i, I got to ask you, we've got a couple of minutes left here, Henry. Sure. With the, uh, the Green Party, a, a player in this now, maybe not a power player yet, but yeah. a player nonetheless, How's that going to impact the liberal and conservative vote? Well, I think I think what voters will do those who who are in favor of the Greens, if in their writing they look at it and they say the conservatives are not going to win, then they're more likely to stay with the Greens because they'll say, well, if the conservatives, I, if I believe the conservatives can't win, and I'm a Green s- supporter, that's my number one preference. Well, I don't. I'll vote the Greens. It's a matter of principle. And even if the Greens don't win, I know it'll be either a new Democrat or a liberal, and that's not too bad. But in cases where the conservatives are a real threat to winning the constituency, they're one of the two top, you know, players at the end of the election campaign. I just think a lot of those people are going to go over. So we'll have to see it. You know, I think the Greens, you know, really need to keep, continue to show momentum. In particular, they, they need to show they can win, um, you know, a, a few uh, seats uh, federally uh, in a general election. Um, 
you know, that, that's what they need to do, whether they're going to be able to do it. But once they do it, then they can start building on it. But they have to show they can win seats, and that's the na- we know that's the nature of uh, what, how people think the parties are impo- uh, important, because then they get into the House of Commons, and they can make speeches, they get on the news. So they have to go forward, they have to get people there. Uh, and so we'll just have to see whether that happens. I don't think that's going to happen this election, uh, but I do think their popular vote will be up. With an, an election that seems to be as close as it is, if you look at yeah. all the polling and try to get an right. aggregate, I guess, uh, i, I got to assume that at some point the conversation here is going to start turning again to strategic voting. In other words, right, don't right. vote for that candidate because that really is a vote for that candidate. It certainly is. Between you know, There's a lot of voters right now who, under certain circumstances, will vote liberal. Other circumstances, they'll vote uh, for the NDP, and increasingly, under certain circumstances, they'll vote green. So there's the, the people on the, you know, on the on sort of the progressive or left side of the spectrum have three choices, and they they can move around there. And there is a group who who look at things and say, I'll, at the la- end of the day, when I actually have to vote, I'll, I have a choice of these three. I'll look at what's competitive in my writing, and I'll do it. Conservatives have an easier chance; they have a smaller base than than the people on the left side of the spectrum. But they have really, at this point, virtually no uh, contender. Well, they have the People's Party. I don't think that's going to do too much. But, you know, okay, they'll lose a couple of percentage points there in some writings. But they, they, don't, have, they don't have to worry about the type of, you know, uh, rev- you know r- wandering that the people on the progressive side, who can wander between the liberals, the greens, the NDP, depending on what it looks like in their constituency. So that migration that we see on the left is is really that's just on the left. I mean, you're yeah, right. I, I don't right think Bernie's now. party is going to have much of an impact. Yeah, I don't think they are either as well. But I but I think but there is that wandering on the left, and that's what's really interesting. And if we look at possible futures, we look to Europe, and we see where the green parties are now much more important in a number of countries than the traditional uh, social democratic parties. We've seen that happen in a number of countries, not in Britain. But yet, but we we certainly have seen that in the um, you know on the continent uh, in Germany, Scandinavia, a number of other countries where the Social Democratic Party didn't adjust to the to the demands of the changing base where people were interested about environmental issues, and the Greens have become far more important. Austria, Germany, uh, we've seen that in a number of countries, the Scandinavian countries. Yeah, the, it's, it is bit quite surprising to me how suddenly weak the uh, some of these social democratic parties became after they had been a fixture of you know a major contender for almost a hundred years. But that's why I, I think a lot of people are looking at the North American situation, right. I guess specifically the Canadian, and say, well, when's that breakthrough going to happen here? That's right. That's right. And, and it may it, it may it may come. Uh, I don't. Again, it may sneak up on us. I don't think it's this year. It may be not too far away, uh, four or five years from now. Or, but, but certainly if you're a green, you're a young green, you could say, okay, I think, I think in, in not, in not too distant future and in my lifetime, I'm going to see uh, a green government. Well, we'll uh, see what happens this October, for starters, anyway. Henry, as always, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the time today. Okay, a fascinating season coming up. It sure is. We'll be talking more about that, you can bet. Henry Jasek uh, from McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Speaking of horrific events, uh, it has been just a a week from hell, of course, for many people in the United States, in El Paso and Dayton and other places as well. Uh, we've seen the political feedback and pushback, of course, as a, as a subset of, of some of the concerns that have been raised by people. 
And Time Magazine, as they try to do, is uh, trying to be reflective, I think, of the mood of the American people. Uh, the cover of their uh, latest edition is uh, causing quite a stir south of the border right now. It's a black background with the names of every town that has had a mass shooting event in the U.S. this year. And that's over 250 of them, by the way. And it just says one word on the cover. Enough. Well, is it? And what kind of an impact is that going to have? Let's uh, bring Alyssa Freeman into the conversation, public relations consultant. Of course, you read her in the Huffington Post, Canada.com, and PR Daily Call. Uh, Alyssa, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. Uh, I guess the big question is, is it enough? Uh, uh, you know, we've, we've seen the pushback that's gone on on here. We've seen a, a nation that's mourning, at least most of them are trying to be mourning right now, uh, with what's gone on. Uh, Maybe from a, a PR standpoint, before we get into to what might happen as, as a result of that, uh, talk to me about the, pr- the purpose of a publication like a Time magazine to try to capture the mood of the public in a situation like this. Okay, that is a really good question, Bill, and I'm glad you asked it. You know, some people look at Time and think, oh my goodness, this is just opportunism. This is just about boosting, boosting, flagging magazine sales. Uh, you know, this is nothing but a capitalistic mood, move. But I, I think at, at this point, given the gravity of the situation that the U.S. finds themselves in, you know, somebody has to take a stand and use their platform for the views that they collectively believe in. So when you look at time on the political spectrum, you know, people call them left of center. They also feel that time is a well-sourced and well-fact-checked magazine. So, you know, it does have that backing to it, which is, which is very, very important in terms of its credibility. The cover enough, when you look at this cover, honestly, when I first looked at it, I had to stop. It was jarring. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely jarring. And I think that the word enough has, has many, many connotations. Enough, period, enough, exclamation mark, enough, question mark. Because really, we say that it's enough, but when you, when I looked on some sites, on uh, some reaction to the cover, many, many people felt that it was just enough, question mark, because they don't really see an end in sight. So for Time Magazine to put this on its cover, there's a visual sense, and, and the artist who did it, he himself said, he, when he had to put his name of his hometown, San Jose, you know, he, he also felt very emotional doing the cover. So there's the visual impact that the cover has, and then there's the questions that are left unanswered by the cover. So it's in its simplicity, it is very, very impactful. And what it's doing, I think, is what it's meant to do, which is start a conversation, create more of that conversation not just one of resignation going, oh, well, there's nothing we can do, but to start a movement and potentially start an uprising because the people need to speak. And if the office of the president is not, and Congress is not going to listen to the people, then, you know, a lot of people that are left of center or Democrats feel that, you know, let's use these platforms in order to help speak for us. I, I share your feelings about that. I had the same sort of reaction when I saw this for the first time as well. But, you know, if, in my case, Alyssa, it, it actually caused me to maybe think back to the days when publications like this, I think, had a responsibility uh, to start that conversation and be a platform for that. Yeah. And, and maybe we've gotten away from that in the last little while. Uh, and, and I'm glad that Time Magazine has reached back and said, no, wait a second, we have a resp- almost a moral obligation, I guess, to, to do something like this. You know, that's a really good point. And I have to say that, 
Yes. There were certain magazines that we used to point to, that we used to go to in order to, you know, maybe relive or get another perspective on um, an incident or an issue. You know, Life Magazine back in the day, mm-hmm. and oh boy, I'm really aging myself here, Bill, but Life Magazine used to be that. Time Magazine has always sort of been that, but with print not doing as well, and perhaps Time Magazine, I don't know what their web numbers are like, but, you know, some some publications have lost that. And then there are some publications that are afraid to continue to expound on whatever political leanings that they have become known for. So, for example, in the New York Times the other day, um, they actually changed the headline because people felt that the New York Times were being too easy on Trump in terms of the attacks. And I think the headline had to do that Trump tries to console a country. And I guess people went absolutely crazy on the New York Times. And I don't know, in a couple hours, they changed the headline to say, still nothing done on, you know, you know, gun control or, or something a little bit more left leaning. So I found that quite interesting. It's almost like publications are either they've drawn that line in the sand, but or else they're trying to put a foot on either side of the sand. Either way, um, I do have to applaud time for at least taking a stand, not waffling, not being namby-pamby about it, but actually creating a platform and leveraging their platform for their, their political views. Well, because the easy thing to do is just uh, slap a picture of a politician, whether it's going to be Trump or somebody else on the cover, and simply have that dialogue. But we were in an age now, Alyssa, where, uh, you know, we as consumers and and those who are seeking information or opinions, whatever the case might be, we've pretty much made up our mind where we want to go to find that now because there's so much choice. You know, if you're right leaning, you're, you're probably onto Fox News, and there are other publications, newspapers, in fact. Uh, that you can get that information from, and on the other side of the spectrum, they've got that that set of of, of sources as well. Time is with this publication, especially, seems to be right in the middle of saying we're not telling you which way to go on this. We're just telling you we need to talk. Um, I, I would slightly disagree with that, Bill. I, I, yeah, I do think that they're saying that we need to talk, but I, I think that their political view on this is pretty clear that, you know, it is enough. Now, you also have to remember that um, after the Parkland shooting, they uh, those kids who sort of became the voice of gun control among um, teenagers, they were also on the Time cover, and they also used the word enough. So Time is almost taking a riff on something that they've already done and cr- trying to create more impact around it. And, and you know, when these covers are created, you know, there's a big meeting. You know, they're all in the room. Mm-hmm. There's the artists. There's the, there's the lawyers. You know, there's the editors. There's, there's everybody. And they're, you know, they're saying, okay, so what are we, A, what are we putting on the cover? And B, what is the point that we're trying to get across this week? And obviously it's the shooting. So you're right. How do you come at this? Do you come at this by putting the president on the cover and and saying what? Saying what we've always said? Um, Do you put uh, a visual of the the aftermath of the shooting itself on the cover? Is that what people want to see? Or do people want to look away from that? This is the type of cover that you don't want to look away from. This is the type of cover that you want to look at. And then if you are drawn in, you actually look closer, and then you start reading all the towns and cities in America that have had gun violence. 
And there's a there's a certain genius in that. So if you compare the earlier cover of the the kids from Parkland, you know, standing in a group, you know, defiant with the word enough, and then you look at the word enough with, you know, hundreds of towns and cities from America on that, you know, it's it's sort of elevated this issue to a crisis point. And and within that, within that very very simple one page and how you're going to use that real estate, I thought it was very, very impactful and and uh, obviously created a very defined and definitive uh, political point of view. Well, it brings the message home. I mean, I know that in, in the coverage uh, the ensuing days after the, the the mass shootings this past weekend, Alyssa, they, they, they made reference to the fact that there have been, I think it's 256 uh, mass shootings uh, in the state so far this year, and more shootings than there had been days of the year. But it, in many people's minds, I guess we're so inundated with information, that, that could be an abstract number, but when you see the names of all of those communities oh that that one it brings back the memory of yeah i remember that i remember that one too and i remember that one and i, I think it really just underscores and probably i hope anyway get people upset about this to the point where they want to see some action on it well you know there's a certain sort of sense of apathy that happens uh when you have a large number of anything one after another after another and you you know, you wonder where where's that line where where do you when do, when is it that you stop caring oh there's another mass shooting you know people tend to look at it like that and and that's the saddest part of all you know when i was watching the aftermath of the coverage and i was watching the president went to Dayton and he went to El Paso you know people were angry and people were screaming do something it was very very simple it wasn't a political cry it was it was a cry out of anguish and, you know, I think that these words become a symbol for how people are looking um, at what's going on around them and helping define the political spectrum. So, you know, there's the people of the tribe under enough, and then there's the do something. So, you know, very, very simple words of the English language that are expressing how people feel and the helplessness that people feel around the situation. And what it does is that it absolutely amplifies the do nothing and then the do something and it's creating a an, an enormous political divide at the same time well ultimately the ball falls into the court of the elected officials they're the ones that can to use your phrase do something how much pressure or how much of an impact does a cover like this have on those decision makers here's where it has an impact it's the amount of calls into their own constituency offices that's where the impact is. So, you know, every morning, uh, the, if it's the governor or any elected official, their team gathers around them and they go through the morning clips. And then they'll review the coverage and they'll review, you know, the press releases that are coming out. But the other thing that they'll review is the number of calls, emails, visits, and they will have a very, very good barometer on how it is affecting them. And they have to listen to that because any elected official is is running scared of what their constituency feels of them because they have one job. The job is just to stay in power. And if you can't stay in power because people are fed up, then then and only then it may it may sway you to the other side. And then you have to remember that a number of these officials are handsomely, handsomely supported by gun lobbies. Yeah. So then how do you balance that? How do you balance your political will and your political strength with the political will of your constituency. And then you have to take a look at that and then create a decision out of that. 
Uh, and we saw that, uh, I guess, with, with Trump himself, who uh, with, with the prepared statement that he read, of course, the day after, uh, talked about some sort of an increased uh, back, uh, background check uh, protocol that was going to be in place. But then the very next day, he met with the head of the National Rifle Association. So I don't know where that's going to go. But uh, and and now we're seeing even Mitch McConnell uh, suggesting that yeah, they're going to have to pass something. He says that yeah, and they're not sure what it is right now. But it seems as if the if the stated purpose here is to try to get these people to finally do something. Uh, it's it looks like they're starting to do that now, and they are starting to respond to this. Well, the apathy is disgusting. Yeah. I mean, let's just call it for what it is. The apathy is disgusting. The, the complicitness um, of, uh, what, of the, the do-nothing side is, is absolutely shocking. It's absolutely shocking. And the media has pointed out, you know, after what happened in uh, New Zealand, you know, there was gun control. After what happened in, uh, I believe it was in, in England, there was gun control. And we're just sitting around twiddling our thumbs because we're afraid to lose our, our gun lobby money and we're afraid to say no to the president. It's a really, really sad situation. Well, and that was one of the things that I think can actually be rather depressing when you start reading some of the names on the cover of Time magazine. And you mentioned Parkland, and there's so many others, the San Diego from a couple of months ago, too. Because uh, you can look at each, each one of those events and say, but nothing was done, but nothing was done, but nothing was done. And you, asked, you mentioned earlier in our conversation here about tipping points. Have we reached that tipping point right now where we're not going to let this story go and fade into the next news cycle? I hope so. I mean, really, I hope so. History teaches us that, yes, that's exactly what will happen. But I certainly hope so. When we have Mitch McConnell say, oh, yeah, maybe we better do something, you know, he's the big roadblock to everything. Yeah. So maybe it's just lip service. But honestly, Bill, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, yeah, and doing something may may not necessarily be the solution here. I mean, there's some pretty pointed things that need to be done here, and I'm not so sure that they've got the appetite to get that done either. All they're worried about is that if their constituencies and their voters are upset that they're doing nothing, that even the moral fiber of people who do believe very, very strongly in the Second Amendment is starting to come apart. Trust me, they will do something because this is all about protecting the base. Well, it's been more than a week, and, and sadly, as one of the, I think it was Chuck Schumer mentioned just the other day, he says, you know, we're going to continue to talk about this, sadly, until the next event happens, and there will be a next event until we finally do something about this. So, the, as we said, the, the pressure is certainly going to be on, the, well, the Senate more specifically here than the, than the House of Representatives, I guess, and we'll be watching. Alyssa, as always, thank you so much. Great talking with you again today. Thank you for having me on, Bill. Take care. Alyssa Freeman, of course, public relations consultant. Uh, and you can read her in Huffington Post and a number of other publications. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.